listening to White Truck. Yeah, are you ready to truck it? I'm Dooner here with Michael Vincent, the dude. Amen, brother. How are you today, Dooner? Beautiful winter day today, isn't it? It's been beautiful the last few days, right? In the uh, mid-50s, it's gorgeous here in Freight Alley, man. What's going on, man? Bold move by us to uh, uh, preempting the uh, the inauguration coverage going on right here as Joe Biden uh, is inaugurated as the 46th president right now as we speak live on the show. It's a big day for the country and a huge day, too, for uh, for women as Kamala Harris is, uh, you know, she's the first female vice president of the United States Regardless of anyone's political leanings, I still think this is a big moment that should be celebrated. I have two boys, uh, but my niece, I remember after the election happened, she called me up. She's 10 years old, and she's like, you know what? A female can now be president. That's powerful, man. The the psychology of hope in children is a great freaking thing. You got two girls. How they feel about it? Yeah, I mean, they're we're celebrating as family. I mean, they're they're six and eight, they're six and eight, so they're not quite as in tune as I would say a ten year old is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're celebrating as a family. The thing that's a shame is that it's kind of been lost in it, right? It's been lost in all and the the rhetoric and the kind of the mood around it and what happened on the sixth, etc. Uh, first woman pre- vice president of the United States should be seems like it should be have made a, more headlines, right? Doesn't it feel that way to you? I think it should. And all, all you here in the comments, thanks for joining us on, on the show. This is also on demand. And we completely don't blame you for uh, for checking us out afterwards. Uh, we know this is a big moment in the country. However, however, on this big moment where we celebrate a female vice president, we're also celebrating two very, very powerful women in business, especially in tech, male dominated field, right? FinTech, Freight Tech. Well, today we're going to have Melanie Wise. She's the CEO of Fetch Robotics. Just an amazing, amazing yeah. background. She even did a project with like anti-gravity. I got to talk to her about that one, what she did with NASA. It seems absolutely fascinating. And uh, of course, Allison Barr Allen. She's the COO and co-founder of Fast. Fast is uh, all about one-click checkouts on the internet. Um, they have had an amazing social media campaign led by both Allison and their other founder, Dom. They do a wonderful job in their bringing communities. Um, I am so excited to talk to him today. Last week, we, it was like Boys Club, right? We had four amazing, strong, powerful business leaders on the male side. Today, it's uh, the ladies' turn. I couldn't think of a more perfect day for it. No, it is a perfect day. I, it's almost like you planned it, Dooner. I, I, I don't I don't know, but uh, maybe, maybe you did. I, I'm really looking forward to learning about uh, the float in a line eye, right? Is that Melanie Weiss? She was a... Right. She was a float yeah. in the line. I guess it was. And and fast. I really we were discussing what fast does. And I'm really interested to hear uh, all the intricacies and, and what what they're doing there as well, because uh, Allison Barr Allen, she's uh, she's got something going there. It's very cool. Well, let's tip the band. And we'll, we'll get to the programming. Uh, thank you to our sponsor, Zembles. You want to crush your numbers? So stop randomly prospecting. Zembles can tell you who is spending on shipping and get you those leads instantly, taking your sales process from a 95% failure rate to a 50% success rate. Go to startzembles.com slash free trial and sign up for what? A demo today, right? That's right. Immediately after the show, my friends. Immediately after the show. Even before you go check out the number. Boom. All right. Trump is officially out of the office, but before leaving the office of the president, he did have some pardons to give out. One of them was uh, a bit of a surprise. It wasn't Julian Assange. It wasn't Kim.com. It wasn't the Tiger King and his limo that he had on standby. Nope. John King's reports it was 
Anthony Lewandowski. He's the former Google executive who pleaded guilty to stealing secrets from Google to create his own company, developing autonomous driving technology. He's been pardoned by Donald Trump. Lewandowski, his name had uh, he not popped up in media coverage. I don't think this was on anybody's uh, pardon bingo card, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> I didn't have the Lewandowski, uh, the Lewandowski square. He pleaded guilty in March and was sentenced to 18, right, 18 months in prison. Uh, but a search of this prison of the prison database of the Federal Bureau of Prisons showed that while he had an inmate number and was registered with the Bureau, he was not currently in the custody of the federal government. Right. In a prepared statement announcing his uh, announcing his statement, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California said the sentencing would start when COVID was less of a problem. So Lewandowski pleaded guilty in March, but the sentencing came in September. Uh, and he was also ordered to pay $95,000 fine and restitution of slightly more than $750,000. In his plea, Lewandowski is only 40 years old. As you mentioned, he wasn't even in jail yet, but he pleaded guilty to one of the 33 counts against him that he had stolen secrets from Google's project show for soon after Lewandowski started his own autonomous vehicle company named Otto was ultimately acquired by Google, right? Uh, by Uber, I'm sorry. Google's self-driving unit, Waymo, then sued Google over what it said was theft of corporate secrets. I guess they're saying he took that technology developed over there and, and started his own company. And uh, it ended up it ended up with Uber paying Google $245 million. The White House said in a statement, Mr. Lewandowski has paid a significant price for his actions and plans to devote his talents to advance the public good. So surprising release there, but um, I don't know. We'll see what's next for Lewandowski after this one. Yeah, exactly. We will. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe Trump uh, invested. I don't know. Here, here's a fitting story today. USB to be spending accelerated as 2020 closed out according to a new report. That's right. In a report published last Thursday, Cantera, they're a, for, a firm that collects and analyzes $1.7 trillion of B2B spending on supplier invoices and receivables across 45 categories, where that spending in December was the highest it's been all year. Spending surged 10.7% over December 2019 levels. Spending by large companies, large consignees, jumped 13.8% as the supply chain continued to be consumed by monsters. That's what Greg Johnson had to say. He's the uh, COO at Boca Raton, Florida-based firm. Small to mid-sized business spending patterns, which as recently as October, were flashing negative, ended the year up 6.4% as November and December spending went into overdrive. Yeah, exactly. It was a far cry from from May, though, when when B two B or business to business spending fell thirteen point six percent year over year, as virtually everything outside the home shut down, as we all well know. And consignees pivoted rapidly to support e commerce and not the traditional in location or brick and mortar environment. The firm said, and spending by uh, small businesses SMBs dropped seventeen point one percent, while large company spending fell eleven percent. Yeah, B two B spending strong across the board. Retail spending surged 16.2% year-over-year, according to that Corterra data. Building materials purchase showed the largest year-over-year gains is 16.6% as construction retail industries spent freely last month. Although consumers, they had an inversion to in-store shopping for obvious reasons. Many saw no reluctance to to go online or to look and buy homes. And I'll tell you, when I was back in Boston, all this talk about city exodus, you weren't seeing it there. Now, there weren't many people out, but there was a ton of construction going on downtown, Michael Vincent. Yeah, absolutely. We've been watching construction go on in, in Chattanooga as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out as far as the exiting uh, the uh 
city centers. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm experiencing that home thing too. I'm in that home buying process and you're seeing, you know, across the country, everywhere you look, uh, home buying is, is elevated. It's probably up, you know, 10 to 15% compared to what you may have been looking at just uh, a year ago. Oh yeah. It's absolutely still a seller's market. There's no doubt about it. Right. I mean, there's people in and out of the houses that are for sale around here like crazy. And I know some people that have, you know, uh, a friend who had one on the market, sold it in 10 days that fell through and it sold while it was still off the market to another person before he even relisted it. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, let's take a look at that retail spending in point of sale, which is the Andrew Cox newsletter. I think you can go to, uh, what freightwaves.com slash communities and you could probably sign up for it over there but uh while you're on the website go to freightwaves.com slash wtt and sign up for that what the truck newsletter you're going to want to read that one especially if you're a fan of the show but it says despite retail sales declining sequentially each of the last three months of the year the 2020 holiday season was one for the record books retail sales during 2020's november december holiday season grew an ex- unexpectedly high 8.3 percent over the same period in 2019 that's unbelievable. And the data includes online and other non-store sales, which were up 23.9% to $209 billion, Dooner. Well, Unbelievable season. One of our guests knows a little bit about that boom. Uh, she's making robots to help out with that. So let's get to it. Our first guest today is Melanie Wise. She's the CEO of Fetch Robotics. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us on What the Truck today. Hey, how's it going? Thank you. So, I mean, thank, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day during this historic moment as uh, Joe Biden speaks right now during his inauguration to to talk to us two knuckleheads. We really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, no worries. This is exciting. I'm excited yeah. to see you guys and talk to you guys. So, Melanie, tell us a yeah. little Melanie, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to Fetch Robotics. Um, well, I, I started the company in uh, 2014, and, um, you know, I've been doing robotics for most of my career. I, I worked at a company called Willow Garage that was a robotics incubator that was, um, I don't know, it, it created a piece of open source software called ROS that became foundational software for for most of robotics that you see today. And I was a core contributor to that for about five years, and then... I kind of got done doing research. I wanted to do real things in the real world. And so I started building robots to help people do their jobs in manufacturing and logistics. Well, Michael Vincent, I've told you this one before. My son, he's six years old, Ronan. And every time you ask him what he's what he's wanted to do, and this is since he was two years old, he says he wants to build really big robots. Melanie, how far away are we from right. like from mech suits? Can, is my kid's dream going to come true? Oh boy. Uh, maybe by the end of his lifetime, I'm, I'm kind of a robot pessimist. Uh, I kind of, uh, am grounded in the real world. I still think autonomous cars are a good 50 years out, to be honest. Wow. That's not something you want to hear though. Wow. Uh, a robotics pessimist. I've never, I've, I've not run across a robotics <laughs> pessimist. That, that's, that's very interesting because Duner and I are kind of geeks, man. We, we see these robots. We want to, we want to play with them all. Mm. We want the exoskeletons. We want the whole thing. And in, in fact, your, your, uh, your, uh, what is it? Your, um, car cart 500 or whatever it is. <laughs> I, want, I want one of those so we can build it, our, our desk over top of it and travel around at our next, uh, our next event while we're on, while oh, we're yeah. on show and use it. Right. A cart connect yeah, 500. Yeah. Talked about putting chairs on it so you could do tours at like Disney world on it. Yeah. It's awesome. I love it. I love it. It's the next hayride. It's a, it's a robotic hayride. You could, you could pull out of it. 
you know, NASA or uh, Dooner's a big NASA geek, and so as I am, as I am as well. With something we saw in your in your uh, background was the uh, your a floating Illini. Can you talk about that a little bit? The NASA reduced flight student opportunity. Yeah, so NASA has a program called the Reduced Gravity Student Flight Opportunity Program, which um, gives students the opportunity to go fly on the KC-135, well, now the DC-9, in microgravity with with experiments they proposed. And so I did that for several years uh, when I was in undergrad, and um, I got to fly on the what is uh, commonly called the Vomit Comet or the KC-135 doing microgravity parabolas. It was a lot of fun, um, and we did some real research while we were at it, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. So did you get to experience, did you get to experience, did you get to experience weightlessness? Oh yeah, definitely. It was awesome. Um, I, I did, so the way they counted is in parabolas. I did something like 70 something parabolas over two or three flights. Um, but uh, I think the most exciting experience for me is when I was on one of my flights, uh, an astronaut was training. Um, and that was really cool to meet her and, uh, and the training that she did, uh, for preparation to going to space. So, Melanie, you have been working in robotics for, for, for years now. You've been with, with several different companies working on, on robotics. If you're a robot pessimist, how do you end up over at, at Fetch? Take us through that journey. Uh, well, I think, I think the thing is, is that I, I, I guess robot pessimist is maybe a little, a little over of a statement. Really, I, I try to be a robot realist. So, you know, I want to bring technology out of research into the real world and make it practical and productive for people to use every day. And I get a little uh, frustrated when people are talking about technology that I know will take 50 years getting into the world, uh, you know, and they're like, it'll be here tomorrow. And, you know, the I think one of the most uh, remarkable things to me is people have a very short term memory about how long it took to bring certain products into the market and make them like massively successful. You know, we're on the 14th year of the iPhone, for example, but everyone feels like it's been here forever. And I, I think that that's, that's one of those things where we forget that it takes 10 years to make, have an overnight success. And we're, we're in the very early stages of robotics. You know, robotics has only been around since 1960. Um, in terms of, you know, practical robotics that we use in manufacturing and, and you know, it's going to take another 50 years for us to get to robotics that is, is something that is usable and that we use every day. So that I like I like your take on it, and, I, and it actually makes sense to me. When you first said it, it, it made sense to me too because I've I've taken on different positions at different companies based on my uh, almost disdain for certain uh, for certain positions, <laughs> but it, it, more of a realistic approach from it. And I get that. So under your realistic approach, no better person to ask the question: What kind of tasks do robots really help with? I mean, you know, you, you're talking about the car, autonomous car, still fifty years away, and etc. People are trying to make robots and get them to do all kinds of crazy things, right? They're, they're boxing, they're dancing, and they're doing kinds of stuff. What's the real use? What's the realistic use? What are they best at helping out with? Yeah, so, you know, everyone has always talked about in robotics it being the dull, dirty, and dangerous. And, and you know, we, 
we look at those tasks, you know, so dull is anything repetitive, anything that no one wants to do. Dirty is anything that requires heavy lifting or is outdoors or could endanger someone's life. And same with dangerous, dangerous, anything radioactive or in, um, you know, subterranean activities and things like that. And so, you know, and now we're starting to expand that into, you know, indifferent, you know, like you, you just don't want to do those tasks. Um, and so those are like your, your house vacuums and, and, and other things like that. But I, I think, I think that, you know, what robots are really good at today is anything that's highly repetitive and can, and doesn't make sense for a person to want to do, or it injures a person to do it. And we've, we're starting to make more and more progress in that direction, but it, it, it takes a long time to get really good at, at doing those tasks so that we're faster or as capable as human beings. I mean, robots are still pretty stupid. Um, you know, when it, in the grand scheme of things, they're like, um, maybe they have the intelligence and motor skills of a five-year-old, um, or maybe even the intelligence or motor skills of a puppy, depending on what it, what it has, what, what kind of appendages it has. So we've got a long way to go, um, in terms of, in terms of robotics capability and what we can do. I mean, we saw that video like that Boston Dynamics put out with their they had like the dancing ostrich robot and like the dancing bipedal robot, the dancing dog robot. I, I got to imagine it's probably more of a marketing video, right? Because uh, I've seen some robots like try to climb yeah, they things, make great and, <laughs> try to climb things and maneuver. <laughs> and the walking ones, they don't do very well. It's still very hard to to solve that complexity. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an extremely hard problem. And and they'll be working on that problem for another couple decades. <laughs> Um, to get to the capability of humans. Uh, so I, I, I think they put out great videos. They sure do. And they, they tend to go viral very often. At least that one wasn't as frightening as frightening as some of the dog videos. But, you know, during the summertime, Michael Vincent and I, we covered a lot of different warehouse robotics companies. I'm from the Boston area, a bit of a hotbed of robotics. So what celebrate what separates Fetch Robotics from other robotics products that are on the market? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the things that separate us from other robotics products on the market is our level of autonomy. So we we have pretty sophisticated autonomy capabilities. We we also are a very broad platform that we provide um, cloud capabilities for. So today we offer robots in three different sizes, 100 kilograms, 500 kilograms, and 1,500 kilograms. And we can move everything from small tubes of toothpaste all the way to like car engines. Um, and then we pair that with a whole bunch of different accessories that allow the robots to do a lot of different things. Um, we can do all of that simultaneously with our, our cloud coordination. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys are, are pretty aware of what it takes to deploy automation in a warehouse. And typically it takes six, nine, 12, maybe even 18 months. But we can deploy robots and put them in a facility because we have this cloud capability in eight hours. And it's it's super exciting for our customers. It's been really great during the pandemic because we can't go on site. So we ship the robots, we do a Zoom call, and the robots are up and doing work in a couple of hours. And it's it's pretty exciting for our customers, given how difficult the pandemic has been on on everyone, with you know not having the same headcount um, and and having some of the the social distancing and requirements from the CDC for disinfection also. 
That's really exciting. That's really exciting, Melanie. It really is as far as the, the time to set up and get in there. Eight hours down from months is, is incredible. What do you say to the people that say, uh, or how do you, uh, what's your comeback to those who say that the automatic automation is, is taking away jobs? Yeah, so there's there's actually limited proof for any of that. I mean, there's there's a lot of data, you know, I guess manipulation to say that that's true. But if you if you look at it, before the pandemic, let's let's just talk about before the pandemic, um, because it's it's hard to talk about it in the framing of the pandemic. But before the pandemic, if you look at it, there were about six hundred thousand open jobs in the United States, and there were a lot more worldwide in the automation manufacturing vertical. And and most businesses were struggling to fill those open jobs and they weren't able to to get people to take them because they're relatively low paying jobs. They are high, high, um, I don't know, high effort jobs, very boring jobs. And it was hard to get people to take those jobs. And so in order to stay competitive, people need to bring in robotics. And what we're actually seeing with our customers is several of our customers are are having higher retention rates because that's the other thing about manufacturing logistics jobs. The turnover rates are around 40%. But with robots, people are pretty excited to, to work at those companies. They feel like they're engaged in new technology. They feel like they can work longer because the robots are doing a lot of the heavy lifting or the moving for them. And they feel engaged in, in the job. And so when you look at it, you know, none of the companies that we've sold robots to, no one's ever lost a job due to our robots that we know of. Most companies are not focused on headcount reduction. They're focused on productivity increase so that they can expand their business and hire more people and hire more robots. I, I have to I have to agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> especially on the trucking side of the industry, there's there's a lot of technophobia. You know, there's drivers that are afraid autonomous trucks are going to take their jobs away. All those kind of things. How do you, as the person making robots, decide where that line is before robots have sort of gone too far? Maybe they are starting to to hurt humanity. Not to put all that weight on top of you, but is, is there a line, and where do you see it? The line is so far away that. Um that I'm not even sure we know how to draw it yet. I mean, the the idea that that we could have anything like sentience, and even then, you know, let me let me let you in on a little secret. Today, it takes about forty thousand dollars to lift a gallon of milk um, in terms of mechanical parts. Um, it's, <laughs> wow. And so it's, it's, it, we're not going to have, you know, that, that, that Boston Dynamics Atlas robot that you see is probably a million dollar robot or more. Um, and so we're not going to see general humanoid robots out there with the ability to, to move guns and things like that for a very, very long time. People are far cheaper, far more intelligent and uh, far more capable and it's going to take a long time for us to get to something like the quote unquote singularity. And I, I think my pessimistic views will have wrecked the planet before then. <laughs> wow. It's almost like being afraid like you're, it's, it's almost like being afraid your dog's going to take your job, right? Like they're enhancement assets, but there's certain, yeah. there's definite limitations to what they can actually accomplish. Definitely. 
That's that's really interesting. I I, I would tend to agree with you everything except that humans are more intelligent. Sometimes <laughs> I, I'm not so not so sure about oh, that. Okay, I'll give um, you that. <laughs> a person, yes. People, not so much. Uh, but you know, Melanie, I'm, I'm interested, lots of really exciting things with drones, right. And, and like beyond site of approval, et cetera, going on. You see this in, in the warehouse, you see drone technology entering into the four walls of warehouse. Yeah. So there's a lot of challenges there. You know, there's new safety standards that are coming out. You have to remember that the warehouse and logistics industry is far more regulated than the, say the car industry. Um, in terms of requirements around safety and worker safety, um, and it's it's pretty hard to to take something like a drone and guarantee that it, it's not going to fall out of the the sky and and hit a worker mm-hmm. and things like that. You're in a very confined space. There's limited it, like opportunities for the drone to move away from an area that that has people in it if it has an issue. And so it's, it's not clear that there's good understanding of how to build those systems redundantly and safe enough that it won't cause worker injury in, in, in the, the worst case scenarios. Melanie, let's talk about yeah, the Let's talk about the market for this a little bit. DataBridge just released a, a report that the global autonomous robot market is expected to rise from an initial estimated value of $6.1 billion in 2018 to $17 billion by 2026. I know that you guys have raised about $94 million in uh, the half dozen years of existence. How have you seen the market change and how do you see this market growing? Yeah, the market is the market has changed a lot. I mean, if you if you would asked me six years ago when the company started, you know, do people understand the technology? Have they heard of the technology? Do they trust the technology? Do they think it's reliable? They, I would say absolutely not. And most of my job in the first couple of years of the company was really helping people understand that the technology is real, it does work, and it's here and you can use it. Now, today, it's it's more you know, justification of how our technology is better than our competitors' technology, and do we have the the suite of products that meets the customer's needs for the 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 type of thing that they're doing? And so it's it's been a huge transition. There's a lot more awareness in the market. There's a lot more understanding of how the technology works and what it's good for, um, and how it plays well with other technologies. Because it's not like any of the other manufacturing and logistics technologies went away. Um, we're just another component in the larger story of how you get uh, a box or an item from a warehouse when a customer orders it online to their home the fastest. Nice, nice. So, Melanie, I, I've got a six and an eight year old daughter, and and they and and daughters, and and they sometimes watch me on TV. They like <laughs> to giggle a lot and watch and, and make fun of me on TV, but sometimes they watch it and pay attention. What would you say to them and to other young girls and women out there that were interested in in robotics, uh, but maybe they're a little intimidated about getting into that field? Yeah, um, learn to program and don't ever let anyone tell you you can't do something. Um, there's, there's always going to be people who tell you you can't do something, but the important thing is to get on the path and, and walk the path to the end. Wow. So just <laughs> stay the course and follow your dream, right? Yeah, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a hard thing because if you, if you look at, unfortunately in the United States, there's a lot of societal barriers that discourage women from going into technology and science whether it's you know things 
like casual statements that people make, like girls can't do math or girls aren't good at math to, to, you know, some of the pressures of, you know, women should do certain types of activities and men should do certain type of, type of activities. And those pressures pile up and make monumental discouragement for young women. And it takes strong mentors and, you know, parents like yourself to give them encouragement and encourage their, their dreams and tell them that it is possible. And we, we have a lot of, you know, things to change in our society to make it possible and exciting for women to want to become engineers and roboticists. And we've got a long way to go because it, there's a lot of hurdles there. I mean, we genderize um, uh, math and science very strongly. I mean, the fact that there's pink Legos and pink tools doesn't help because it teaches both sides, boys and girls, that girls need different things to be successful. And that's a real disservice to all women out there. And we have to start changing those things in order to make it possible for women to feel enabled and empowered to be successful in these fields. I, I crossed the Lego line. I'm glad you brought that up. My kids and I do a lot of Legos and they love our Frozen 2. So my four-year-old, he wanted like the Lego Frozen 2 set. I don't know. It's pink and turquoise, but it's got Snowball, right? It's got Snowball the monster with it. So I got it for him. He's building it. You know, got to break down those barriers in the in the toils. But I, I totally get what you're saying because it's so in, ingrained in society. We have a, one of our friends is Shelly Simpson. One of the friends of the show is Shelly Simpson from J.B. Hunt. She's risen to the top of the trucking industry. You know, the male-dominated old boys world of the trucking industry and she espouses the same advice to you and it's just to you know don't let the noise cloud you don't listen to the doubters and but also that it takes support from leadership as well and that's something she very strongly promotes yeah yeah excellent stuff yeah so uh so before we let you go what's next for fetch and where can people learn more yeah, so I mean, we're continuing to expand and grow the business. And, you know, if you want to learn more about our robots, you can go to fetchrobotics.com and check out any of our customer videos um, and any of the case studies to see how we can help your business be successful. Melanie, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. Take it easy. Thanks, Melanie. Next, we're going to be talking to Allison Barr-Allen. She's COO and co-founder of Fast. But before we get to her, I think we have a quick message from their other founder, Dom. Let's play that tape. Hey, I'm Dom. I'm the founder and CEO of Fast. We're a startup based here in San Francisco, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. We're building the one-click checkout and one-click login for the entire internet with no passwords. This is the internet we've all been waiting for. We're 11 months old, we're already a team of 23 and growing very quickly. We're backed by some of the world's biggest and best investors, and we're already engaged by the world's best brands that you know. Wow. Uh, fascinating stuff. Dom is, a, by the way, if you don't follow Dom on Twitter, I highly recommend it. I believe it's just at D-O-M-M. He's a great guy. He actually helped set up this interview with Allison today. Allison, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now you are a uh, you're a Northwestern Wildcat, right? You spent five years at at Uber before co-founding uh, Fast. Tell us tell us how you got here. How'd you end up over at Fast? Yeah, so I'm actually from the Midwest. Um, I grew up in Ohio uh, and then went to Northwestern for college. Um, during college, I thought I was going to become a, a doctor, so I wanted to. I was doing pre med and studying biology um, and taking lots of science courses. Um, but after four years of really intense school, I 
um, I was really tired of studying and I wanted to take a break. Mm -hmm. So my goal was to do management consulting for a year uh, before going to medical school. Um, So I ended up working at PwC in Chicago, um, mostly working for health insurance companies. Um, and I, once I started working, I really didn't have much of a desire to, to go back and back to the grind of, of studying for lots of really intense tests. So I ended up staying there for uh, four years. And then my brother, who's two years younger than me, was in Boston, and he uh, was a self-taught front-end developer and had started working for really small tech startups that were only two or three people. Um, and from following his journey and experience, I thought what he was doing was way more fun than what I was doing at, uh, in consulting. So my goal was to work for a startup. Um, and then I ended up getting a job at Uber in Chicago. And then after about a year, I transferred out to San Francisco. I, I love it, Mike. I love how many... Um, well, first of all, shout out to Boston. You, you know, you had to stay there. So little little cowbell <laughs> for, for that one. But I love how many entrepreneurs are like, if you just looked at like their schoolwork or their interest in school, you'd be like, well, they're not going to go places or, or maybe they're lazy. But so many of them they're just bored. Like they just want to get to work and and they just want to get busy, busy that way. I mean, you're you're one of many stories that go that way. Yeah. I think I've always been driven by curiosity um, and uh, like intellectual curiosity and trying not to be bored. So I sort of always followed uh, challenges that I thought were really interesting and fun to work on. It's very cool, Allison. Thank you for joining us. Mike Vincent here. Nice to meet you. Uh, in that snippet from Dom, we saw the snippet from Dom about the about the company, right? And, yeah. and very interesting, a very interesting speaker as well. I love his pronunciation of Faust uh, is, is very cool. But he talks about the how it how it kind of came about organically, right? Granny needing uh, groceries and was ordering online, but couldn't uh, uh, remember the password, right? Can you kind of Talk us through the the creation of Fast and 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 really the problem that you guys are solving. Kind of go through that for us. Yeah. So Dom initially had the idea for Fast um, when he was in Australia, and as he said, his wife's grandmother had trouble ordering groceries online, um, and he thought it was sort of ridiculous that she couldn't log into her account after she forgot her password to order the groceries. So the first version of the product is actually a passwordless authentication product or passwordless login um, called Bypass. And then a few months later, he ended up uh, changing the name to Fast. Um, and then about six months after that, he uh, launched it on Product Hunt, just the, the passwordless product, and it, it got quite a bit of attraction. So he decided to come to San Francisco to try to build the business. Um, so I ended up meeting Dom about a year and a half ago. Um, he wasn't really looking for a co-founder. I was actually doing angel investing. Um, so I was interested in venture capital and investing in startups. Um, and especially was interested in fintech startups um, and payments companies since I had been really embedded in the payments and fintech space at Uber. Um, so I ended up meeting Dom shortly after he uh, came from Australia. And he, he didn't really know that many people in San Francisco and didn't have much of a network at the time. I think he'd met with one or two venture capitalists. Um, so I, I met him and I thought... Uh, I thought it could be really big and ended up introducing him to one of our very first investors. And then after that, Dom came back to me and and convinced me to join the company full time. Wow. Allison, out of curiosity, how does one get involved in angel investing? You know, I see a lot of like VCs on Twitter and, and I, and I see all the retreats, but they're, they're they're already along the way, right? They're already investing in stuff, but like, what's the origin story there? Or what was your origin story? How did you start? How did you even know what to do? Yeah, so my story is kind of interesting. I was a self-taught public equity investor. So I was always sort of interested in stocks after I graduated from college when I was doing consulting um, and sort of 
ended up following a lot of tech companies and um, sort of developed hypotheses and ideas around stocks and tried to follow what made them go up and made them go down and sort of understand the mechanics behind it. Um, when I was at Uber, I was just so busy that I didn't really have as much time to do investing. But um, later on at Uber, I started networking with some some investors and um, venture capital was really interesting for me because it was really a combination of like my operating experience at Uber and all that I'd learned of what it takes to build a really big company and then also um, investing. So uh, for a long time, I thought I was going to become a venture capitalist um, and really spent a lot of time studying the industry and how people look at different deals. Um, I sort of also learned how to uh, angel invest by happenstance. So um, I was talking to all these venture funds about potentially working for them. And then a company came to me and asked for feedback. Um, cause I was, I was already active on Twitter at the time and, uh, they sort of saw my experience at Uber doing payments, um, and working within FinTech and, uh, they're building a, a parking startup or a parking marketplace. So, uh, they had some questions about payments and about the product. So I gave them feedback and then they came back to me and asked me if I wanted to invest. Um, and I was like, well, I want to do this for my job potentially. So I, I might as well. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing at the time because I none of my friends really angel invested. Um, I had no idea how the mechanics work. So I, I picked an amount of money and, and said yes and wired it to them. And <laughs> didn't really know what happens after that. Um, but again, I sort of taught myself and uh, started networking with different companies over time and ended up started writing small checks um, into very early stage companies. And it was really fun because uh, I was at this huge company and then I could talk to these founders um, where it was only two or three people uh, who had a prototype or a very a seed of an idea. And I could try to assess whether I thought it could be really big or not. That sounds exciting. It's a, it's kind of a cool path. You just kind of jumped in. It's mm -hmm. I, I love the fact that you jumped in not knowing really what you're doing, just saw the vision and, and went for it. That's really cool. Um, this past year, obviously, during the uh, through the pandemic and continues on, unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, advancement in, in tech. A lot of things have been adopted uh, and moved forward years. Some say 5, 10, 15. It depends on, on what you're talking about. How have you guys navigated through last year? This seems like something that would grow pretty well during, during the past year? Yeah, it's been interesting because our strategy and approach really hasn't changed because of COVID. I think what COVID does do is it sort of re-emphasizes how important what we're building is um, and how uh, crucial, it, how much it's needed in the world. Um, so before COVID, payments online payments and e-commerce was growing really rapidly. So in the US, it was about 14% of all uh, retail transactions were through e-commerce and that was growing about 30% year over year. Um, and then during COVID in, in the spring, one of the quarters, actually the whole e-commerce industry grew 30% in one quarter. Um, so there's just massive growth. Um, so I think it, it totally accelerated uh, everything that was sort of already happening. Um, and then our product, especially it, we, we just kept building all year. I think uh, we've been very focused on, on building the product and, and starting to scale it. But I think because of COVID, it really emphasized why what we were building was so important because suddenly um, it wasn't just like a nice to have to be able to order groceries online. It was like a, a core necessity for many, many people. And I think especially older people and people who aren't as tech savvy really have a lot of problems with passwords and, and buying things online. So I think anything that we can do um, to break down those barriers and make it really, really easy for anyone to use the internet in, in a safe and secure way um, is what we're very focused on. 
you and uh, you and Dom have both leveraged Twitter very, very well. I mean, you could argue that you two are the best, the the, the most strongest marketing arm of the company, at least insofar <laughs> as Twitter goes. Especially with like, you know your fast hoodies. Um, Dom's always super accessible. You know, he'd put a fast helmet on you, especially leading up to that launch. Tell me a little bit about that strategy. What made you sort of rest your laurels a little bit on, on Twitter and and make that a cornerstone of your uh, your go to market strategy? Yeah, it happened very organically. So I've been using Twitter for a long time. I first used it when I was getting into stocks and looking up earnings reports and found a lot of sort of real-time financial information on Twitter. Um, and then when I got into tech, I sort of started leveraging it, it a bit more um, to, to follow startups and, and news generally. Um, and then when I was looking at venture capital, I used it to learn about venture capital by following a lot of people there. So I always found it as an incredible tool to gain like real access to people. And um, I think Twitter is amazing because you, a lot of times how companies previously communicated with their audience was through press releases or blog posts that were often written by the comms team and then edited by legal. And it was sort of very uh scripted and edited and on twitter you saw like most people no matter who they are they're actually tweeting from their real account and it's actually them so um i thought it was like a really interesting way to think to learn like what elon musk is thinking and all these like different people um and you, you really get to see their true personality um so actually dom and i met through twitter because he reached out to me through a cold dm um and then we ended up meeting up for coffee several times um and then uh after I joined uh, Fast, I, I had like tweeted about it. And uh, since I had sort of developed a following already, a lot of people started noticing Fast and what we were doing. And then um, we sort of use it on an ongoing basis to just share information and get people excited, um, particularly around recruiting. So when you're building a company from scratch, recruiting is one of the very most important things. And uh, we thought Twitter was an incredible way to really find people who connected with our mission um, and could be excited to, to work at fast and um, work on the problems that we were thinking about. Yeah. Mike, I can't, I can't play this down how well like they got people excited. Cause you know, we're talking about like a one, a one click checkout thing. I mean, the, the prospect of making yeah. that cool and really interesting to talk about and engage with on Twitter seems like quite a challenge, but they, they took a smart approach to it and they gave a lot of themselves and their advice and they kind of did the build in public thing that morning brew does very well, does very well as well you had a big launch last year that, that big excitement what was it like when you when you went live were you guys super nervous for like i hope this thing doesn't completely crash um launch was really fun and, and interesting <laughs> so all summer we'd been building the product um we'd started really scaling our engineering team in around june so a lot of the people were really new to fast we were we were building a really complex product. So one-click checkout seems really simple, but what I learned at Uber and uh, what we what we do at Fast, it's actually very complex from a back-end perspective and engineering perspective to make these very simple products. Um, so there's a lot of systems that need to work properly. We're integrated with e-commerce platforms. We're pulling in order data about what people are ordering. We're pulling in shipment information. So there's a lot of things that have to work, and especially when uh, you're building it for the first time, uh, there's lots of things that, that could go wrong. Um, so uh, it was definitely a sprint to get up to launch, but I think uh, launch was an incredible way to really showcase and, and show to the world what we were working on. And um, while it's a, a payment button, I think we've been able to also build a consumer brand about it around it. 
Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Uh, one of the things that struck me, Allison, is, is it can be kind of counterintuitive to what you're we've always been taught about online security, right? Keep your passwords separate, keep different ones, make sure there's 27 different types of symbols and some, uh, you know, uh, capital letters and some lowercase, etc. Um, how, do, how does it stay secure? Can you can you speak to that to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, our main authentication is through email. So uh, as long as your email is very secure, then uh, we think your payments will be secure as well um, because email is one of the, has one of the best security mechanisms in the world. Additionally, we invest really, really heavily in security and privacy. So we hired a VP of security in about March of last year, like far before our product launched. Um, I think security and privacy is about 10% of our overall company. So um, we're, from the very beginning, we've invested very, very heavily in security because we think this is one of the most important aspects um, of what we're doing because a lot of times people don't want to use online payments because they don't trust it. Um, so we're really in the trust business and not just saying that we're secure, um, but actually really, really heavily investing in the area. Allison, prior to Fast, I mean, I, I hate going to a new website. You got to log back in. You got to fill in your billing details, your payment details. So a lot of times, uh, if the option's available, I would use Apple Pay or, or you know, PayPal to, to check out. How does Fast differentiate from those products? What, is it, what does it give me or what does it make easier than one of those two? Yeah, there's a few key differentiators. So one of the main things is we're on product pages. So uh, we're on a site called Chromatic Coffee. You can go to Chromatic Coffee and our, our button is actually on the product page. So, uh, or if you click on an advertisement for Chromatic Coffee and you go to the site, you can just click fast checkout um, as opposed to adding to cart and then going through all these different flows. Um, and what we've seen by adding it to, by having really simple, easy to use checkout flow and also adding it on product pages, we see a significant increase in website conversion. Um, so far more people will buy products um, with Fast installed when they visit your website than without it. Um, and that was sort of our hypothesis, but we've seen it in the data multiple, multiple times. And uh, one of our, our recent stores in Texas, um, Saddleback Leather, they actually saw a 65% increase in conversion. So the numbers are pretty crazy. Um, a few other things. So one, we're really combining authentication with payments. So it's it's not just a payment button, but it also um, creates an account for you at the store. Oh. Uh, so you don't need to, to log in and then also um, pay. Um, another significant thing is we're integrated with order management systems of the store. So unlike uh, Stripe or your bank or uh, PayPal, um, these payment buttons will know the, the merchant of record. So they'll know where you made the purchase and they'll also know how much you paid, but they don't know actually what you bought at the store. Um, so because it's a hosted checkout page and we're also investing in, in post-purchase experience, so order uh, delivery tracking um, and we'll add like returns and refunds and other functionality over time. But we're, we're pulling in SKU level data about what people order, um, which will enable us to uh, create more personalized shopping and discovery experiences in the future. Now, Betty Robinson in the comments, she's or Betty Robson, she says, great discussion. And uh, she, she's referring to a question I asked Melanie Wise a little bit earlier. She said, thank you for helping to highlight the importance of encouraging women to consider careers in logistics through discussion like these and the journeys of Melanie Wise and uh, Allison Barr Allen, who will inspire many young women. What would you say to young women who uh, fintech, you know, very male dominated, uh, investing can be very male dominated. So I'm sure there's there's some barriers put in your way. What do you say to women who want to get into these fields, especially young girls? Yeah, I think, yeah, good question. 
my my main advice is to raise your hand. Uh, so we get inbound all the time, um, but I find especially men are far more willing to to do cold reach outs and ask for ask for our time or apply for jobs or uh, say they're interested in working at the company. Um, and I think uh, we found that men are a bit more interested in working at really early stage companies as well. So um, my advice is to really raise your hand and, and volunteer to take on big projects and, and don't be scared to apply for new roles or, or really take on a lot of responsibility. Another thing is don't be scared to like express your opinion. Um, Twitter has been an amazing tool for me. Um, and I think partially because I'm not afraid to put my ideas and thoughts out in the world. And there's a lot of people who, who read Twitter, but don't necessarily tweet or uh, put their thoughts out there. And I think it's an incredible way to, to build your brand and, and get people to know you. So, so Allison, can you, can you uh, talk about your growth this over this past year and, and what's in store for the future there at Fast? Yeah, that video is funny because we're now at about 90 people. So we've grown significantly since the spring when we announced our Series A. Um, we're very focused on scaling our product. So we launched uh, on the big commerce platform in uh, September. So any big commerce store can add fast in about 30 minutes. It's it's really simple. Um, and then we launched on WooCommerce um, a couple of weeks before Christmas. So right now we're starting to scale on WooCommerce. Um, and this year we will be continuing to scaling by adding new platforms and also uh, building custom APIs so that if you have a custom website, um, you'd be able to add fast as well. Now, where would people go to follow you on Twitter? I think you're a, you're a great follow on there. So I'd love to, to share that out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is at a bar Allen. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to find. Fantastic. And people who are interested in fast, they've been listening to this and said, yeah, I like this idea of, of the authentic authentication and, and the, uh, one click checkout. Where do they go to if they want to install it in their store? Or they're just curious for more information. Sure. You can go to our website, which is www.fast.co.co. Um, and you can access our careers page. You can uh, submit a entry form uh, to be a seller and our sales team should reach out to you uh, pretty quickly to get you onboarded. Allison, thank you for joining us on this historic day. I know there's a lot of other stuff going on in the country today, so we'll, we'll, we can let you go back to, uh, to put some eyeballs on that as we will be after this show. Once again, we appreciate your time and thank you for your inspiring words to all the, uh, the young female listeners out there as well. Thanks so much for having me. Michael, you know what my takeaway from from talking to both of those ladies was? Okay, go, go. Well, it's like anything in life. I think a lot of people have have fear about stuff before they start doing it, right? Oh, I don't know how to do it. But here's the thing. Yeah. Nobody, knows, nobody knows about robotics until they start dealing with robotics. Nobody knows about fintech until they start doing it. Nobody knows about angel investing until they, until they start doing it. I mean, she was like, you know, a lot of times you get to fly by the seat of your pants. That was uh, sort of Allison's message. But she, but they both said too, don't listen to the doubters. Just, just believe in yourself and keep moving forward. Because a lot of time, those existential forces, uh, you don't want to make them internal forces as well, right? You don't want to internalize those things and let them stop you from doing what you really want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And what it comes down to what you're talking about is confidence, instilling confidence in in our youth and in, in, in the young women uh, and young men in, in your boys and in my daughters. It's it's that confidence to go out there and try something new. And like Allison said, raise your hand, get get involved, go for it. Uh, as, as she did. And, you know, Melanie struck me as someone who really wouldn't care what somebody said to her if it yeah. was a negative thought. She, I, she appeared to be one of those people that know is just a challenge, right? Did it not to you? 
you gotta love someone who's selling robot products who's like, I'm a robot pessimist straight straight out of the gate. Yeah, I, I, I like- yeah. <laughs> robots robots are worthless, so I'm gonna found a company and build them. <laughs> no, I mean I'll I'll tell you it's it's yeah. kind of a it's a better long-term play, I think, than some of the stuff that that we've seen before. Like you remember a couple of years ago where you know blockchain was this and, and by the way, we are gonna be doing a show on blockchain to tell you what's up with blockchain, but there was a point in time in blockchain's history when it may have been overpromised and underdelivered. It can do this, this, and this in the supply chain. And I think a lot of people with experience were like, well, how do you get all these intermediaries involved? But I think that that blockchain is starting to find its place and and its footing. But you know what I'm saying? We, it we, certainly we, is. It certainly is. And I was involved with BIDA, the Blockchain and Transport Alliance, uh, quite heavily in the beginning, right? I was on a membership committee, et cetera, and, and, and did a lot of speaking about blockchain and transportation logistics ar- around the country. And and my my goal in that was to strip away that hype and get down to the, the actual use of it. And I think that's what Melanie's talking about, really, in, in when she says she's a pessimist, but really a, a realist, right? Yeah. Well, we have a little bit more time. What happened? Whoa. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. I don't know. Who was that? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. What happened? Uh, let's go around the world of freight a little bit. Some news. This is what I saw on LinkedIn today. E-commerce and supply chain top LinkedIn's rising jobs list, right? Number one on there are professionals on the front lines of e-commerce. They said as many sheltered in place this year and last retailers and logistics companies onboarded thousands of e-commerce workers to help get products from store into the hands of customers. Hiring for these roles grew 73% year over year, Michael, and demand continues with over 400,000 open jobs right now. Yeah, I think e-commerce. That I think that's that's. And you probably wouldn't guess that because it's not all that open, but it it certainly makes sense reading about it, right? We've seen e- e-commerce ex- explode, and all of the the issues around the e-commerce and the things that are uh, the issues around the logistics of supporting that e-commerce uh, with this massive explosion that's happened so fast. It, it doesn't. It, it makes perfect sense that 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 is that is number one to me, really. You know, companies are really starting to see the value in this, too. I was reading uh, a report in Supply Chain Dive. They were talking about Alexis Dupree. She was uh, Nordstrom's executive vice president. Um, she, Alexis Dupree, is that she's the executive vice president and chief supply chain officer. She'll become the newest member of the company's executive team, or she became the newest member on January 3rd, 2021. And the company's reason behind that, e-commerce is becoming too big a thing to act like, you know, what goes on with supply chain just happens in the warehouse. It's, it starts at the top. It's the lifeblood of your supply chain and the lifeblood of your company. And a lot of companies who don't get on board with stuff like this are going to be the ones going out of business. If they're not working with the fetches out there, the fast out there and putting a lot of value in what your supply chain leaders say, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. It's it's become more of the uh, uh, a necessary evil, and it is more of a differentiator in in many many ways. Not only on the on your bottom line and on your efficiencies, but also your engagement with the customers. Dooner, I mean, I, I, when we talk about e-commerce, you're talking about that pre and post uh, purchase experience and during it right through it. And we've talked to all those people, right? Melanie's pre and post, uh, you know, Allison is during that uh, thing and post, right? Because, you know, they're, they're getting that data to help uh, give you a better experience. Well, and creating a return loop, as she said, one of our questions that yep. before we went on air, when you and I were having our production meeting, we're like, well, how does fast, you know, it's great that you can do the checkout, but does it give you the benefits of having an account on each site? Because there is some value in logging in, even if it's a pain in the butt. But as she said, when it's integrated with a site, it actually, Actually creates that account for you so you can have all that 
that sort of order tracking, rewards points, and all those other things, all those other benefits that you would get from being part of a site. Michael, we were also on the list. We were number nine, digital content creators. So, I mean, you know, it's not number one, but it's in the top 10. I demand a recount. <laughs> it's set up from TikTok to YouTube and blogs and podcasts. The demand for digital content creators grew 49% year over year, providing uh, consistent information, media, and entertainment for us all. Just a lot of thirst for it, especially working from home. Working from home, it's very, it's very uh, nice to throw, like, you know, the YouTube TV. Like, I have the inauguration on my, my iPad, you know, or to throw a, a, a FreightWaves TV episode or whatever it may be. You, you just have more time to control your environment, and uh, people are seeking information. I think that's also why B2B digital media is doing very well as well, because we're filling up people's work hours. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, and you know, I, th- I think we're, some would say we're probably responsible for about 40% of that 49% year over year growth, right? <laughs> Just what the truck, well, at least 33%, right? We've, we've grown a third. Have we not? We're now on Wednesdays. Well, we've grown much more than a third. It's the power of exponents. Yeah, by, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By, by actually absolutely. adding one show, we, we grew 75%. It's, it's just one of those things that the, the more you create, the more noise you make, the more people hear about it the more they share and the more that find out about you. One of the ways they can find out about this show, Michael Vincent, is through the What the Truck newsletter. Go to FreightWaves.com slash WTD, WTT. You can subscribe for free. Just throw your email address in there. And if you get the newsletter, you know that we were talking a little bit about drones yesterday because as you touched on with Melanie, you mentioned if there was a drone application for them. Well, a lot of noise is happening in that space. The uh, a, a big breakthrough happened beyond visual line of sight was approved. And what that means is that a drone operator can um, can operate a drone without actually being able to see it with their own eyes, which means you could put people in remote facilities and control them much differently. In fact, Lisa Elram, she's partner and chair of the Global USA Practice at uh, Hogan Lavelle, she said the commercial drone industry is growing quickly and providing significant benefits to the American public, but enabling expanded operations beyond visual line of sight is critical for that industry to take off. We're seeing even more noise too. In Israel, they're starting to deliver pizzas with these things, Michael. I'm not sure how your pie would show up though. What if there's some turbulence? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. It might might shake some of those things off. Turbulence in my pizza delivery uh, and delays. But it, it's interesting because that beyond of sight brings in more regulations, right? And it might be counterintuitive thinking that it hinders things, but it doesn't because now you have to have the pilot designations, et cetera. And reading through that uh, is unbelievable. But, you know, the reason for the acceleration is approval process of drones. Uh, they need to use far fewer, fewer uh, flight paths, right? They've joined forces with Pizza Hut to launch the new program. Uh, so ordering a pineapple pizza online, you know, you <laughs> yeah. judge, bro. Well, the driver will, because the driver picks it I mean, well, but, but this also crazy. You mentioned, you mentioned those the, the line of sight and all that will, and, and the flight patterns. One of the things, too, is that when the drones are coming to you, they need a place to land. So now there's a whole other economy of, of companies like Drone Deck, which are making drone-enabled mailboxes. They're starting out with, like, community ones. So if you were in, like, a subdivision, like your own, for example, and someone in the community ordered something that's delivered via drone, there might be a, like a, a, a mailbox out in the front that's specifically designed for drones. I'd have to see what one of those looks like. I was reading the article. They didn't have a picture. I'm curious about how it'll fit all the packages, but yeah, it's exciting. Friday on the show, we got Jim Monk, Mary's president, Transportation DHL Supply Chain North America, Claudia Freed, CEO, EAL Green, Rachel Premack, Transportation Reporter, Business Insider, Curtis Gutierrez, president, Casey Smart, Port. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Dooner. You can find him at Michael Vincent. Subscribe to the show. Look up What the Truck on your favorite podcast player of choice. Take it easy. Boom.